Sir Ian Rankin, it's very good to be able to say sir, and it's also very good to have you with me for 20 Questions With. You are most famous, indisputably, for your Rebus books. I think you've written 24. Your 24th is A Heart Full of Headstones, although when I interviewed you on stage quite recently, I got the title wrong, because in the book that was given to me as a sort of press copy or an early copy, I, I think I looked at it round back to front and it had one of the quotes there instead. Anyway, it is a heart full of headstones. It is, I think, your 24th Rebus book. And I just want to ask you to tell us about some of the themes that most interested you in it, because there are plenty of themes that interest me, but I'm interested in what interests you. Um, well, the book started really in panic mode because I'd been trying to get something off the ground since August last year. Uh, August 2021 and nothing was happening and I went on holiday January 2022 with my wife bearing in mind I had a June deadline for a book and I'd still got nothing and it just jumped into my head the plot started to appear in my head day after day on this holiday and all I had with me was my mobile phone so I would tap little notes to myself character development twists plot points and the theme and for me, the theme really was, because um, often I get my ideas from what's been happening in the news. And it was to do with police, um, not so much police corruption, but the, the number of bad apples that seem to be still in the police force. Um, so we had a lot of um, merd hitting the fan at the Metropolitan Police in London uh, for all kinds of reasons. And I thought, well, Rebus has been a bad cop. And he's in the past, um, when he was a cop, he's now retired, but he would cross the line and jump back again and cross the line and jump back again. So there's quite a lot of skeletons in his cupboard. And I thought, what if they start to come tumbling out? Um, maybe I can talk about the kind of policing we now have compared to the way policing used to be in the past the things police can no longer get away with. Um, bad behaviour used to not get caught on camera because nobody had a camera in their pocket, etc. cetera. Um, and the kind of policing we think we want. Uh, you know, are we, are we happy with touchy-feely, politically correct, modern policing? Or do we prefer the kind of hard knock school of the likes of Gene Hunt in, uh, in um, uh, Life on Mars, the TV show? So all of that was swilling around in my head and I started to put it on paper. And I'm wondering whether you feel yourself developing as a writer. I don't just mean stylistically and I don't just mean whether you find yourself improving as a writer, but adapting to the world around you. As you say, you talk about the changes that we might have seen in police forces in this country. Do you feel that yourself? Do, do you feel that you are changing with the times? It's hard to it's hard to say whether it's the times I'm changing with or if it's just changes in my personal metabolism uh, and 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 mentality. You know, I mean, I'm slowing down as a writer. I get fewer ideas than I used to when I was young and vigorous and full of vim and energy. Um, and I'm very conscious of the effort it takes to write a book now. I used to write books very quick, very fluidly, very fluently. I never used to think too hard about it. I just did it almost in a fever dream. And it seems like harder work these days. Um, and, you know, I, like my character, Rebus, I'm getting older, creakier, more forgetful. I need glasses. My hearing is going. Uh, as Leonard Cohen once said, I ache in the places where I used to play. So that's very much my character and me. So all of that, it's hard to it's hard to sort of pull these these threads apart and say that some of it's to do with the world that I'm living in and some of it's to do with my personal 
makeup and circumstance. I'm interested, though, that you say you feel it's becoming harder to write books because I can imagine that with your success and, and being used to writing comes perhaps a greater freedom. Certainly it's true to say that you do not now at least plan or plot your novels, do you? Sometimes surprise yourself with the direction in which it's going. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always a spine. There's a spine of a plot there that allows me to investigate the theme I want to investigate. But coming off that spine are all kinds of tangents and um, anything can happen. Once the book gets going, the the shape that I thought it was going to have usually changes. This, the, the novel itself has an idea of its shape and form, which I've only been vaguely, if at all, aware of. And I'm open to that. I'm open to serendipity, to happy chance finds, to the idea that the book has a better idea of where it wants to go than I do. And usually if I go along with the book and its idea of where it wants to go, I get a much better story at the end of it. Um, And yeah, when I start a book, I usually don't know the ending. Sometimes I don't know who done it. Um, I often know as little as my police detectives when they arrive at the scene of the crime. So as they're investigating, I'm finding out what they find out, and that helps me to put together what's actually going on. That's not going to work for every author. I mean, any wannabe authors out there who are jotting down notes as to how to write a book, every writer is different. Everybody has a different way of doing it. But more crime writers than you might think actually do this, what what we call pantsing, planners and pantsers. And people think a crime novel is, is so kind of schematic, it must be planned in advance. But many of us fly by the seat of our pants. We just make up as we go along and we hope it all falls into shape eventually. And usually it does. Given what you've just said, if you were to, to hold a creative writing class now, would that be very different to the sort of class you might have held 10 years ago or 20 years ago? How challenging is it to teach the art of creating writing? Well, I mean, I, I was, I've never, you know, as a student, I never, ever did go to a creative writing class. Um, if they'd been available, maybe I would. But back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was at university, there were no such things as creative writing classes. I mean, it was one, I guess, at East Anglia, but there was no way I was going to get access to that. And then fast forward a couple of decades, three decades more, um, I got a visiting professorship at East Anglia teaching postgraduate students um, about crime fiction and the thriller. And I, and I said to them, look, I've got no idea how I do this stuff. I can't teach you anything. But when I got them alone in a, a tutorial situation, one-on-one, I would say the same thing to each of them. It was try and forget that you are in an academic environment. Try and get back to the you who was young, maybe sitting in your bedroom or in a library or you know, on a, on a park bench just making stuff up, having fun with your imagination, getting to play God, putting a structure on the world, giving the world a shape that you could control. Try and make writing fun. If you're not having any fun, you're probably not doing it right. And that's about it, man. I mean, you know, I can give you very basic tips like read a lot, write a lot, maybe keep a journal so you're writing every day, so your writing muscle gets used. Um, be prepared to take criticism, but learn what criticism is useful and what isn't. Get a thick skin because you're going to get a lot of rejections. And when a long time ago I was asked by The Guardian, a lot of writers were asked by The Guardian for their top 10 tips. My number one tip was get lucky. And my number 10 tip was stay lucky. How did you get lucky? A lot of it was down to perseverance. Um, I just refused to take no for an answer. In the early days, I was sending 
poems and short stories off to publications and publishers who were never going to even look at them. Um, and I just kept plodding away because I was thrown, as we say in Scotland, I was stubborn. I thought I had something worth saying and I wanted to share it with the world. And the luck element came in, I guess, fairly early on in that, although there were no creative writing classes at Edinburgh University, we did have a thing called a writer in residence. And this was a professional writer who would come in for a day or two a week and you could hand them your work and you'd make an appointment, you would go back and you would discuss what you'd written. And one year, the writer in residence was a guy called Alan Massey, a terrific novelist, short story writer. He also happened to be the judge on a short story competition and awarded me second prize. He then took that story, no, sorry, didn't he took another story of mine for a magazine he was editing. And then when I said to him, uh, Alan, actually, uh, I'm writing a novel. He introduced me to his editor at uh, Bodley Head Publishing House in London. And they published the first Rebus book. Um, it wasn't just sent to them, it was sent to eight publishers and seven said no. And the Bodley Head, possibly because I'd had some contact with this editor, the Bodley Head said yes. What do you think it is about Rebus? Or what do you think it is about you that has enabled you to create the career that you have to write 24 novels, to be one of our most successful selling authors? Um, I mean, again, I think it comes down to stubbornness, just brute refusal to take no for an answer. So even when the Rebus books were published, I mean, the first one was published when I was 26 and I was just in, just about to leave university um, and go out into the cold, hard world. Uh, and it was published to no fanfare and very few sales, um, no prizes, no nothing. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm done with that. I've tried my crime novel and it hasn't worked. And I went off to try and become John Le Carre and wrote a spy novel called Watchmen, which sold almost as badly as the first Rebus book. Then I thought, well, I must move into the world of political espionage and um, high stakes thrillers that will get sold in vast numbers in airports to travelers. And I wrote a book called West Wind, which sold even worse than the first two books. And I went back to Rebus, my editor at the time who'd stuck with me, my editor from Bodley Head, Ewan Cameron had stuck with me throughout this. And he said, look, whatever happened to that guy Rebus? And I liked him and I thought he's a good way of exploring Edinburgh, a good way of helping me to explore Scotland, its culture, its politics, its psychoses and everything else, its deep structure. So I just kept going and people just weren't that interested in crime novels set in Scotland, crime novels set in Edinburgh. Um, they were much grittier, more American style than the English offerings, people like P.D. James and, and even Ruth Rendell. Um, I was much more influenced by the American urban crime novel. So they, they weren't selling and weren't selling and weren't selling. Um, and then, I don't know, something happened. It just I had served the apprenticeship by the time Black and Blue came along, which was Rebus novel number eight. And I remember this well because we were pretty much homeless and we were staying in friends' houses. It was winter. And we were staying in friends' houses in the UK for as long as we could before they kicked us out. And we moved on. And I bought a newspaper one day and it said, the best crime novel of this year has already been published. This was the beginning of January. Um, and I thought I, wonder what, I thought, I wonder what book that is. And I bought the paper the following Saturday and it was Marcel Berlins was the reviewer and he was saying that Black and Blue was the best crime novel he was going to read that year. This was the beginning of January. Come November, it won the gold dagger for the best crime novel published that year. And suddenly everybody sat up and took notice. So I'd served a long apprenticeship, um, I'd stuck with it, the books had got better, I'd honed my craft, and eventually it all came good.
not everything we read about each other is true online, obviously. But my sense is that you uh -oh. did quite a few. You did quite a few other jobs as well before you established yourself as a writer. And I wonder if that's true. Maybe you could tell us the sorts of jobs you did and whether that life experience <laughs> helped you as an author. Well, the first job I had was when I was still in high school. Uh, no, it wasn't, sorry. It was just after I started university. My mum worked in a chicken factory and she managed to wangle me a job in the hatchery. So summer holidays, um, spring holidays, uh, winter holidays, I could go and work in this chicken hatchery. And it was pretty gruesome stuff. Um, but then I was I was very gruesome minded. So, you know, probably all fed into the material I was writing at the time, very dark poems and short stories called things like euthanasia. And um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I'd always, I'd always had that darkness within me and that led me to some kind of grim jobs. I mean, I was an alcohol researcher, which was basically a private detective. This was to earn pin money while I was a student. And I'd have to go around interviewing teenagers about their drinking habits. Um, uh, I had to track them down. I was given a kind of list of names and addresses of people who had previously been interviewed and now two years had passed. I had to track them down again and I got paid per interview. Uh, I did that. I was a tax collector for a while. It's pretty rubbish. And then when we got, when I left uni and moved to London, I got a job uh, as a secretary at um, Middlesex Polytechnic in White Hart Lane. And then eventually, by means of the Guardian jobs pages on a Monday, which used to be all the creative jobs, I applied to be a hi fi music journalist on a magazine um, that came out of Crystal Palace in London called Hi-Fi Review, and I got the job. I think I was the only person who applied. Uh, or if I, if I wasn't, I was the only person who applied who actually owned a Hi-Fi system. So that was me until we left to London for France so I could become a full-time writer at the age of 30. Take us even further back to your childhood. You mentioned your mother. I think your father worked in a grocery store. What sort of childhood did you have and how did that help to shape you? Uh, very working class. We lived in a kind of council house in a part of a terrace. Um, I was pretty much born and brought up there. Uh, so it was a mining village called, called Bow Hill, became part of a larger conurbation called Carden Den. The mines closed down for economic reasons in the mid-60s. All my uncles were miners. Uh, all my aunties were married to miners. My dad, the youngest of his family, he had gone off to work in a grocer's shop. And um, for most of my childhood, he was running a grocer's shop, an independent grocer's shop in a small, a kind of small uh, chain in um, Loch Gelly, which was the next town over from us. And then he got made redundant and eventually went to work at Rosyth Naval Dockyard in the offices there. Mum worked in a, a chicken factory before that. She'd been in a school canteen. She was preparing meals for the workers. Uh, you know, so the house was freezing cold in the winter. We had no central heating, um, paraffin, dangerous paraffin heaters in every room, um, ice on the inside of the windows, the usual sub story, you know, get the violins out now. Um, and I was creative. I was, I, I loved using my imagination. I loved going to the local library. I would take as many books out as I could. I loved reading. If you took me to somebody's house, I was always straightening about the magazines, the bookshelves to see what they had. I started drawing my own little cartoons, strip cartoons and writing poems and song lyrics because I was mad on music, but I had no musical ability whatsoever. So I invented a band in my head and wrote all their lyrics, which then became poems. Um, and that was it. I was off and running. But I mean, it was a rough, 
it was a rough town, really. And I became very chameleon-like. So I would wear the Doc Martens and I would hang around street corner with the rest of the gang looking tough. But when they actually physically went off to have a fight with a neighbouring town, I would go home and write about it. I would say, sorry, guys, I've got to go home now. And I would just imagine what it would have been like to be there. And I would write it down, sitting in my, my bedroom with Pink Floyd playing quietly in the background. And my parents were bemused when at 17 I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to, because they thought you go to uni. I was the first member of my family to go to university. And they thought you go to uni to get a trade. So Ian will become a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, an accountant, something high flying, make it lots of money and he can look after us in their old age. But the thing I love was literature. And I said, look, I'm going to go to uni and study uh, English literature. And he said, my God, what kind of job will you get with that? And I said, well, I'll come back to Fife and I'll teach. I'll become an English teacher. So that was the kind of life plan, you know. And I think my parents were, were bemused and even more bemused when I started to win prizes for poetry and short stories and eventually got my first novel published. Something you said earlier in the podcast is still sitting with me, the idea that it's harder work now to write than it was before. Overall, how hard a worker are you? What, what's your work ethic like? Well, I'll tell you what Andrew Neil said about me uh, once on television. He called me stakanovite. Now, I had to look that up. Matthew, you're an intelligent man. You'll know what stakanovite means. It's basically a hard worker for the state, someone who during the Soviet communist regime would have worked very hard for the state. So he was saying I was a very hard worker. I think I am the laziest hardworking writer I know. Um, I used to write two books a year when I was skint, then moved to one book a year when I could, when I could afford to do so. Now I write one book every two years. I'm slowing down drastically because A, I don't need the money and B, the ideas are harder to come by. But also C, the better known you get as a writer, the less time you get to write because you're too busy being a writer. You're too busy on the road, doing podcasts, doing interviews, touring books. You get offered all kinds of lovely things. Um, go on this cruise ship and talk to our passengers about being a writer or, or go on this television programme or do this documentary. Wonderful, wonderful um, offers that you get, but none of them are helping you to sit down at the computer and do your next book. So I, I, when I'm writing a book, I do work seven days a week and the books are written in a fury um, and are written very quickly. Uh, and then I go back and rework them and rework them. Um, and by those means, I've managed to churn out, I mean, yeah, 24 Rebus novels, but there's at least another dozen books on top of that. So it's, it's well over 30, getting on for 40 books I've written. First one was published in 86. So you can do the maths on that. I've not been lazy, but I do like not writing. Uh, I do like sitting, listening to music, reading a book, doing a crossword, going to the pub. I'll do just about anything it takes to avoid sitting down and actually starting work. Just help us to picture the setup when you are actually doing that writing. What's it like? Describe it to us. Well, I, I interviewed you before for a podcast or possibly even a live event and you had a glass of red wine in your hand. Now I think you're drinking tea. Describe the setup and, and tell me whether you, have, you, you would ever write with a glass of red wine. I'm curious. No, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I went through that Hemingway Faulkner thing of thinking to be a writer, you've got to be a drunk. And I would try drinking and then writing and it just didn't work. Um, so I don't know. I mean, if I'm doing a podcast, I can sit there. If it's an, it must have been an evening event, Matthew. I wouldn't have done that during the day. <laughs> but an evening event, yes, I will have a drink with me, a beer or a glass of wine or a whiskey while I'm doing it. Um, today I'm on kind of herbal tea, I think, as I've got in my mug. 
Um, so the setup is, well, I mean, I'm sitting at an old trestle table, which it's like a, a painter and decorator's table. Um, so just any flat piece of wood that sits on sort of V-shaped or inverted V-shaped legs, um, which I bought uh, when I was first married from a shop on Charing Cross Road in London and then took home to Tottenham on the Tube. Uh, how we got it back, I'll never know. But anyway, it's travelled with me ever since. That was 1986 and I'm still working at it. The laptop I work on is so old, I have to put coal in it every morning to get it started. It's had its screen replaced, it's had its hard drive replaced, but it's my workhorse. I'm very superstitious, so I'm very reluctant to get rid of it. Um, the office I work in, I moved not that long ago into a slightly bigger office. It's nice, it's got pictures on the walls, it's got a hi-fi system. When I actually start writing a book, there'll be a few pages of notes that I have accumulated to get me started. And then as the first draft is progressing, more and more notes will arrive scattered around the room, character names, character descriptions, things I need to remember to put in later on in the book. Because um, as I say, I make a lot of that up as I go. Maps of Edinburgh, A to Zs of Scotland will appear, any historical books or, or um, technical books that I need about legal matters or medical matters will have been borrowed from the library or purchased and will be sitting around. So the room gets messier and messier and messier. And at the end of it, when the book is done, everything gets put away and, and I can breathe. You've mentioned music quite a lot so far and I haven't picked you up on it. You've also mentioned pictures on the wall. What, which is the art form, and I can include writing in this, that moves you the most, that really grabs you more than the others? Um, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. I, I love going to galleries and, and going to art exhibitions. Um, the last time I was in London on the book tour, I had precisely 90 minutes of free time, and I used that to go and see the Lucian Freud exhibition at the National Gallery. Um, I've been, I've, I, when I was a student and had no money at all, I took the night bus from Edinburgh to London to see an exhibition uh, by Francis Bacon. And I looked at the catalogue and I thought, I can either afford the catalogue or food before I go back to Edinburgh. And I bought the catalogue. So I guess I starved that day. So I love art and a lot of art does move me. Um, my, the older of my two sons is very much into art as well. And I love going to, exhibitions and churches and museums with him because he knows a lot more than I do and he's very passionate about the subject. Um, but when it comes down to it, music, I mean, music's always been there. I mean, art I got into fairly late in life. I was a student, possibly even a postgraduate student. Music was there from the get-go. Um, a dance set record player that my parents got my sister one year for Christmas became mine. Uh, my, she was my older sister, but I was the one who, who coveted the record player and bought the singles to play on it. And one of the first singles I ever bought, if not the first single I ever bought, I still got, which is a theme from Shaft by, uh, uh, by Isaac Hayes, the film Shaft. I wasn't old enough to go and see, but nobody stopped me reading the book and nobody stopped me buying the record. Um, so music and all kinds of music, whether it's classical, modern, classical, ambient, um, uh, uh, Spiegel im Spiegel is, can move me to tears on any given day. Um, Brian Eno's ambient can move me to tears on any given day. There are bands whose lyrics, and Nick Cave's lyrics, the Mutton Birds lyrics, there are all kinds of things I listen to that can emotionally move me, but also I think can, can G me up if I'm in a dark place, I'm in a bad place. During that time we were living in London, I started having panic attacks. This is not, after, not long after we got married. And 
the doctor said to me, look, you just got to get away. And I, I went to the train station, jumped on a train. I just looked at the board and it went York. And I thought, okay, and I just got a train to York, got up at York and looked at the board and ended up in Scarborough out of season. And I'd taken with me a, a, a personal cassette player and a bunch of tapes from the Hi-Fi office, the Hi-Fi magazine office where I worked. And I listened to a bunch of Van Morrison. And by the time I came back from that few days away, I felt a bit better and I'd made a big decision, which was that we had to get out of London. I had to give up this job. We had to move to France and I had to become a full-time writer. All of that happened because I was having panic attacks and Van Morrison came along and saved me. I've struggled with my own mental health. How's your mental health now? I don't get the panic attacks nearly as much as I used to. Um, and if I do get them, I can know what to do now. I remember when they first came along, my wife said, look, just breathe into this paper bag. I thought she was having a joke, you know, but the breathing into a paper bag did help. And when you discover you're not the only person suffering from this, I think that's a big help. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been times in my life when that have been a lot darker than they are now. I mean, it's not, a, you know, I mean, I've, I've dealt with friends and family members with depression and, and it's not an easy thing for people to deal with. Um, it, I mean, what do you do apart from just patting somebody on the shoulder and saying, I'm here for you? It's very hard, it's very hard. And it, of course, it's not physically there. It's not like you've got physical symptoms, as it were, that people can go, oh, you're, you're in a bad place. What can I do to help? On the surface, you can be doing fine, but underneath you're paddling away like hell. Um, I think, you know, I mean, this sounds, this sounds terrible. Money helps. I think a lot, of the, a lot of the panic I had was because I didn't know what I was doing in my life. My books weren't being successful. The one thing I wanted to do in life wasn't making me enough money to live on. Um, now that I'm a successful author and I could step away from this at any moment and I would have enough money in the bank to live on. I mean, how amazing is that? Um, that helps. That takes away one of the things that used to panic me. I know my family are going to be well looked after. I know that I'm, I can look after myself well. If I want to take a year off, which I'm about to do, I can do that. Tell us about this incredible year off that you're about to take. <laughs> Some of the places that you're planning to go to. I'm going to make you jealous, am I? Uh, this was my wife's idea because, you know, for, for ages we were going to take some time off and go travelling while we've still got our the use of our limbs and the use of our brains. We thought, let's do it. Now we've got enough money in the bank to help us do it. And then the pandemic came along and actually I found myself writing four times as much as usual just as a way of escaping from the pandemic. I could think myself into another alternate universe um, and I could play God and make things happen the way I wanted them to happen. Whereas in the real world, I wasn't able to make anything happen the way I wanted it to happen. So she said, right, next year you're taking a year off. Um, I don't need to deliver a book next year. Um, so she said, let's do it. So January is St. Lucia. Uh, February, I think I'm going to run a 10K in Italy. Um, March or April is going to be Ch Japan for the cherry blossom. June, we're going to drive through Italy from north to south not going on any motorways. July, August is going to be Greece, I think. Uh, September, October is going to be the USA and Canada, especially the Northeast, so we can see the leaves changing. Uh, she's got other plans. I mean, my wife is, she's not short on, on plans, but those are the big ones that we're fairly confident will happen. Jealous is the word. I'm, I'm also interested. I hate traveling, by the way. I do hate traveling. Uh, and I'm not, an, I'm not at all adventurous. I got all my adventures in my head. And, and uh, that has always been the case. So it's my wife, Miranda, who was my, you know, she was my girlfriend at uni. Whenever I've done anything adventurous in my life, it's always been her that's been at the back of it. 
as a man who's been married for as long as you have, do you have any tips, top tips for a <laughs> successful, enduring, happy marriage? Uh, always listen to your wife would be one of them, obviously. Um, things she tells me to do, I tend to do. She's much, she's much cleverer than me. She's much smarter than me. She's, she's much more intellectual than me. She reads more than I do. She knows more than I do. That's always been the case. Um, so, yeah. Um, and, you know, in the early days, she went out to work and supported me while I was trying to be a writer. I was making no money. She was the breadwinner. So God bless her for that. Um, tips, you know what? I mean, when we... We had four years in London living in Tottenham, and that was a bit hard because we had very little money and we were sitting in this little flat. Um, and then we moved to rural France to a ramshackle farmhouse, and still we had not much money, but we were much freer. And we weren't kind of feeling oppressed by London or having to go to work every day. And suddenly we found ourselves in each other's company pretty much every hour of every day for six years. And if you can survive that, you can survive any length of a marriage. And I think that, you know, we got to know each other really well. We, uh, both our kids came along during that time. So we were both at home, both there for them, um, unless I was away touring, which was obviously something that happened occasionally. Um, I think that was a big help. We really got to know each other um, well from, from spending so much time in each other's company. And, you know, any problem that came along, we had to deal with it. I mean, there was no, there was no fallback. There was no parachute. Um, the only parachute would be to scamper back to the UK and admit defeat. So whenever sort of cataclysmic things came along, we just had to be a unit and, and, and get through it. What's been your experience of fame? Um, good, mostly. And I think that's because I'm not that famous. I can mostly walk about the streets without being noticed. I mean, I'm, I'm not as visible, visibly recognisable as anybody who reads the news or does the weather on TV. Um, so I get asked for selfies a lot less than those, those celebrities do. So it's kind of fame without celebrity, which is quite nice. I mean, uh, you know, walking around Edinburgh, I do get noticed. People sometimes have a quiet smile in your direction. That's about as much as an Edinburgh person's going to do, is just smile at you. Um, People don't tend to come up to tell me how bad they think my books are or how much they hate me. I try and keep out of debates which are toxic, um, whether that's in the real world or the virtual world. It's good. I mean, just today, there's an exhibition at the National Library of Scotland. I gave them my archive, um, everything to do with my writer's life, and they've put in a small exhibition of it, and I hadn't managed to get along until today. Um, and it was a woman walking through, and she sort of recognised me. And, and sort of came over to say hello. But that was about it, you know. And in fact, several people were in there going around the exhibition, taking photographs of the artefacts and didn't recognise me, which uh, is, is also quite amusing. So I was able to go along and see my own exhibition without having to stop for selfies. You mentioned Edinburgh. And I just wonder whether you've got this mouth-watering trip planned for next year, but something that a lot of us have experienced during the pandemic we're sort of emerging from that now is just the beauty on our own doorstep how beautiful the British Isles are and not many places more beautiful than if any than than the highlands and and, and also the lowlands of Scotland mm. do you ever just plunge out into the wildernesses on your doorstep and and enjoy well we did I mean during lockdown yes when we were allowed one hour of time outside for exercise we, we live right next to a very big piece of parkland in Edinburgh called the Meadows. That was hugely popular. So we would, we would ignore that. We headed into town and we would walk from up around by the castle 
and down all the little alleyways off the Royal Mile. And they were completely empty because there were no tourists. No tourists, no festival, no nothing. So you could walk around the centre of Edinburgh without seeing anybody. It was an extraordinary time. Um, we also live in a, 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 an area of Edinburgh that's mostly students. It's a mixture of, it's mostly students and some Airbnb. Again, that was completely um, empty. So we had the building we live in, we were the only people in our building. Um, 10 other flats, but nobody in them. So we had this whole building to ourselves, which was quite eerie, quite strange. But it did make me think, yes, Edinburgh is a beautiful city, but it can't just be a museum. And during the pandemic, it became a kind of museum because a city without people is not really a city. You need a society, you need a community, and it lacked all of that. So it was lovely to walk around these empty streets, but after a short space of time, I really wanted a few people to be around. And luckily people did come back. When, we think, when you were able to go a little bit further afield, yeah, we would go long walks. Um, I, I, I started jogging when I was in my 40s or early 50s. So I'd go jogging around bits of Edinburgh that, that I wouldn't normally go because normally they're so busy. Um, even along Princess Street, the main shopping street. But some, there's a lot of Edinburgh that is wilderness. You can go into Arthur, around where Arthur's seat is, Holyrood Park, Arthur's seat. You can be in the middle of that and you can look around and not see a single habitation. And yet you're still in the middle of a city. You can walk along the water of Leith and it's way below kind of street level, really. And you're, you're almost at the bottom of a canyon and you can walk along there and not, feel as though you're in the middle of a city. Um, so there are kind of brilliant wild, and then once you go a little bit further out, the Hermitage and, and, and Blackford Hill, there's some wonderful um, wilderness right on the doorstep. And if you want to then go to the seaside, you've also got the seaside, you've got Portobello and Leith are right on the doorstep as well. So it's a city of many, many things. If you want a, an urban walk, it's got great urban walks. And if you want to escape humanity, you can do that too. It brings me back to your writing and to the importance, some might say similar importance of place, of location in your books, in your, in your Rebus books. Do you think Rebus could have been written in, set in Paris or in London? Otherwise, no, for various, I mean, for various reasons. I mean, look, I lived in France for six years and at no point did I think, okay, I'm going to write about this place. Um, and Rebus, you know, you, I mean, yes, detectives like Rebus, you can have in any any culture in the world and I mean sometimes you do have them yeah I mean he shares a lot of DNA with people like Harry Bosch in Michael Connolly's Los Angeles for example um, or Henning Mankell's character in Sweden so yeah there are kind of Rebus archetypes out there but Rebus has been created by Scotland he's Muriel Spark a great Scottish novelist once said that she was Scottish by I'm going to I'm going to forget the word now it's something to do with development, personal development. Um, and that's kind of it. I mean, Rebus is my way of looking at the world. And mostly what I'm looking at is the state of Scotland, um, the st well, state of Edinburgh, and by extension, the state of Scotland, the culture, the politics, the social issues, uh, the, the kind of deep structure of the place. So I'm doing all of that through the Rebus novels. And I'm happy investigating that. And I've not got to the bottom of it yet. So until I do get to the bottom of it, I've got no interest in writing about anywhere else. But I do love crime fiction for that thing, for the thing that you can, if you want to know about any culture, any city um, in the world, go to the crime fiction that is set there and you will find that you, it's almost like a travelogue. It's like a guidebook. You'll find out about the people, the social problems they've got, what they like to eat and drink, what they do at night, um, what their, 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 their sense of humour is like, what their philosophy of life is, their political situation, their history, 
and their potential future. All of that you will get from the crime fiction. So if I'm going to go to a new country that I've not been to before, I always seek out the crime fiction about that country because that's as good a primer as any. I'm going to try and wrap a lot up into this question, but are you influenced by other crime writers? You talked about the importance when you're giving tips to others of reading a lot. Do, do you still read a lot? And is some of that crime fiction and some of it other fiction and are you influenced by any of it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're influenced by everything you read, I think. Um, and, the, I mean, there are certain things. I mean, number one would be William McElvaney. He was a Scottish novelist who wrote three crime novels featuring a detective called Laidlaw, um, a precursor to Rebus in many ways. I ran up to him at the Edinburgh Book Festival in 1985 and said, oh, Mr. McElvaney, I'm writing a book that's like Laidlaw, but set in Edinburgh. And that was the first Rebus novel. And he wrote, he, I gave him a book to sign and he wrote in it, Good Luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw. Um, so he was a huge influence early on because he was a literary novelist and what that taught me was that crime fiction could and should be literary or at least thought of as literature. Um, and you would end up finishing one of his novels? Yeah, I mean just a couple of years ago I ended up, um, he'd left notes for a novel at his death and his widow asked me if I would consider writing the book, which I duly did as an act of homage to him. Um, and she loved it, so that was the main thing. Uh, so he was an influence. Uh, Ruth Rendell was one of the first crime writers I read, and she was an influence. But very early on, I got into the American stuff. And it was writers like, there was Lawrence Block in New York who wrote about a private detective called Matt Scudder. There's a bit of Rebus in him. Excuse me, there was also uh, James Elroy in, in Los Angeles. And he was important for two reasons. One, his style. It is very staccato style. And when I got to black and blue, I changed the style of my books to be much more like James Elroy. Two, he used real crimes and real historical events in his books. And I thought, oh, can fiction do that? Fiction can write about real crimes and real people. So again, Black and Blue, my breakthrough book, at its heart had a character who was a real life serial killer in Scotland called Bible John, who was never identified, never caught. So he became a character in the book. So all of that I learned from James Elroy. And yeah, um, every, every great crime writer has, has probably influenced me in some shape or form. Um, uh, but I try and hide the facts. So I don't have to give them any credit or any royalties. <laughs> do you do you feel now that crime writing is given the credit or the critical acclaim that you feel it deserves? Yeah, I think the situation has changed a lot since I started in this game. When I started in this game, you would not get crime writers invited to literary festivals. Um, you know, Hay and Why, Edinburgh, Cheltenham. You probably wouldn't have found crime writers there in the early to mid eighties, or you might find. P.D. James or Ruth Rendell, I guess, um, at a stretch. Um, but then they were members of the House of Lords. Um, but no, things have changed. You can now study crime fiction in universities, on university courses, literature courses. You can sometimes do your English essay on a crime novel at high school. Um, I, get, I get letters from people who are doing their PhDs or their MLITs on the Rebus novels or on, you know, themes in crime fiction. Um, so that's been a huge change. I mean, we've still not had uh, a crime novel win the Booker Prize, though we've had many literary novels that really are crime novels win the Booker Prize. Um, I once accused Ian McEwan, by the way, of being a crime writer monkey to his face. I was presenting him with an award and I said, you know, I always think of you as a, as a I can't remember if I said crime writer or thriller writer monkey. I want to be crime writer. And he said, oh, thank you very much. He was very, he seemed absolutely quite chuffed by that. Um, but early on, you know, I was told by, uh, a writer at, that I met in Edinburgh, I, I said, look, I'm writing crime fiction rather than literature. 
it seems. And he said, well, you may not get the kudos, but you'll probably make some cash. And as a working class kid, it was important to me that I make some cash from this job that I not need to have to go cap in hand to the Arts Council looking for a, looking for a handout. Final question is, what makes you happy? Or describe your perfect evening. Um, I like going out for meals with my wife. That's always good fun. We, we do like eating well. Um, going, in fact, this very day, I'm going to the pictures with my son. I'm going to see some Korean film. I don't know anything about it. He's chosen it. Um, I love going. I love hanging out with him. Uh, this, we've got a house up in Cromarty, which is a, a little town to the north of Inverness. And you just look out over the sea, you look out over the Cromarty Firth. Um, and I can sit and look at that view forever and be happy, especially if I've got a pint of beer in front of me. Um, so, yeah, but happy, man. I mean, you know, deliriously happy, outrageously happy. Can you, the kind of gleeful joy I had when I was young going to punk gigs? Uh, I tend not to experience that so much these days. Uh, it's a kind of quieter, more mature contentment rather than joy. See, Ian Rankin, it's been brilliant to ask you 20 questions and have 20 of your answers. Thank you, Matthew. As always, a pleasure. I just want to add, because we did talk about mental health, that if people are struggling with anything that we talked about, do get help. There is help out there. Talk to people. The Samaritans, just one example of that, 116123, 116123, if you're in the UK. See, Ian Rankin, thank you. Thank you.